You know, you know the joke where there's an older couple and they're, they're trying to remember the name of the restaurant. And the husband's like, oh, I know it. It's, um, oh, it's the name of a flower. Chrysanthemum, daffodil, rose. Ah, Rose, Rose, what's the name of that restaurant? <laughs> Greetings across whatever you listen to stuff on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Modell. Thanks for wafting in, subscribing, and finding this and sharing it with people. This is the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniment. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, podcaster, DVD label, live streamer, piano tuner, occasional dog walker, well, my own dog. I'm so glad you're here. This is episode 36. The reason you're hearing a new episode in two weeks' time and not in six or eight months' time is because of my friend Kerr Lockhart, who is now on board as co-producer and co-host, and I'd like to bring Kerr out now. Say hello, Kerr. Hey, Ben. As we record this, so we've just passed episode 11 of the Silent Comedy Watch Party. Certainly, technically, anyway, the best one yet. It's looking very, very slick now. It's very, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad it's perverse. going slick for everybody who's watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 no, and thanks for for watching, yeah. Wild panic and sweat behind the scenes is there. (laughs) Yeah, there's a picture that Mona, my wife Mona Allen, took of me at the end of episode 11, kind of posed, and I'm surrounded by all the wires and tech and laptops and all this stuff, and I actually took one version of it and then labeled everything with arrows to post on social media, and maybe I, I need to do a blog post that has that up just so you could see what kind of one-armed paper hanger operation it is. For me, there's a lot of tech stuff to deal with, but I'm also accompanying the films, and there are parts of the process that I'm doing while I'm playing. I'm glad it's working better for everybody, and it looks better and sounds better. And so, Kerr, why don't you fill our listener in on what we have in store for episode 36 for them? Well, this show is an all-star show. Big, big silent film stars. We're going to be talking about accompaniments for, respectively, Douglas Fairbanks's Robin Hood, The Loves of Carmen, and White Sister with Lillian Gish and Ronald Coleman in its early Henry King film, that great 20th Century Fox director that made such a big name in the 40s. And we're also going to be talking about playing for live streaming which is becoming a thing now in our current stay-at-home situation and is likely to remain in some form thereafter. So it's something worth talking about. Yeah, definitely. So first up is uh, Westerns. Yeah, Westerns were the bread and butter of most theaters Often, I found when you look in trade magazines and you see those, uh, what the picture did for me, uh, reviews from th- theater owners, sometimes you, you read s- something about a film that we think of as a classic drama today, and they're holding their nose and saying, yeah, give me a Western any old day. They're crowd pleasers. They're five or six reels long, and you could get lots of people in and out, sell tickets. And ironically, they are not, that well circulated today it's really rare to see westerns shown 
the pair of Tom Mix features that I played for at the TCM Classic Film Festival last year, it was just a real almost anomaly just to show silent westerns. The place was packed. We had 600-something people at the Hollywood Legion 43 Theater to see the the great k and train robbery. There's, I think, two William S. Hart films that have been released recently. They, they're around. The, the Museum of Modern Art has a lot of them. Hart gave uh, the Museum of Modern Art nitrate from his own collection way, way, way back. And there's a series that Ann Mora uh, put together, uh, the the Modern Matinees uh, series, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at one thirty, And I played for about three or four weeks for a, a whole bunch of William S. Hart Westerns from MoMA's collection. And it was so just great to get to see so many of them. I had scored uh, a film called Sand with William S. Hart for Unknown Video. And that was paired with a short starring a Western star named Art Acord. Actually, Chris Snowden, who is or was unknown video, contacted me at some point and said, hey, I see what you're doing. You're posting things on YouTube. If you ever want to post any of the things that you scored for me, go right ahead. And so when the pandemic hit and we're all thinking, oh, what can I put on YouTube? And I pulled out the release of Sand. And this is something I recorded in 2007. It's the second year I was using the Meditzer program, which is the first virtual theater organ program that I was working with. And it's still kind of early in my being a theater organist. And the mini disc I recorded it on plays fine. <laughs> I found the, the mute DVD of the films, synced them up, and I hated the score. Uh, um, the score, it's, it, it's, I mean, the playing is just atrocious. I can't believe anybody. I, but the scoring on the Art Acord short was okay for me. And I posted that. And it's up on my YouTube channel. And there'll be a link in the show notes. It's a good film. It's an extremely rare film. A lot of his stuff does not survive. And the, the score I did for that was good enough that I didn't mind putting it up. I wanted to put something else up, and I remembered that I had an old analog telecine standard def transfer of a film called Three Word Brand with William S. Hart. It's about two reels shorter than its full running length, and I believe the film does survive complete at the Library of Congress, I think also at MoMA. But this is a 16 print. I don't even know where it came from. It's in the public domain, but I don't want to throw up some archives 35 print, which this wasn't. So uh, at least it's an example of something of his that that's... It's good. It does hold up with the 20 minutes out of it. I didn't have to re-record the score. I think I was okay with the score on it. So that's up on my YouTube channel as well. And the Southwest Silence blog uh, over in England has been doing a, a number of blog posts about films that I have scored either for my own YouTube channel or there's one called The Italian, which I scored for the Library of Congress's screening room. So there's a blog post by Rosie Taylor about Three Word Brand. There'll be a link in the show notes, as Chris said. And that can be, dear listener, your introduction to William S. Hart, if you like. And yeah. Invite yeah, you to yeah. explore. William S. Hart is, is really the pioneer of the good bad guy, of the very dark hero with a dark yeah. past. And for that reason, and this is the... I find it odd that he's not around more because his films feel rather contemporary. Yeah, I, and I tell people just eat and even... Just because of his, his face and his countenance, he's kind of like the silent film version of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. The filmmaking is very, very good, and they're definitely worth taking a look at. So uh, don't dismiss him. 
There's one on my YouTube channel, so as they say, first one's free. So our first musical selection is an accompaniment to one of the biggest pictures of the entire Silent Era, a, a huge blockbuster with literally the biggest stars, the original Douglas Fairbanks. There's no analogy mm -hmm. that can equate anything happening today. So the film we're going to talk about is the much remade story, Robin Hood. The story is cited in Kevin Brownlow's oral history, The Parade's Gone By, that at Grauman's Egyptian Theater, Robin Hood ran for so long that streetcar conductors, instead of announcing the location, the stops, instead of saying Egyptian Theater, they would say, all out for Robin Hood. Yeah, and this is, I think, his second picture after Zorro. So there's Zorro, Three Musketeers, then this. And he not only invented this costume action-adventure genre, but completely resuscitated the costume picture, which up until Zara was thought of as this boring, stuffy type of thing, and he found a way to add uh, action and humor into it. And the thing about the, the film is that, as was often the case in the late teens and 20s, there was songs that were composed and sold as sheet music to promote the film. And sometimes it would work the other way around. Oh, the film is so popular that you will buy the sheet music the way you might have hit songs from a, a film the way they did in the 80s and 90s or even before that. And there are two pieces that were themes written by Victor Scherzinger, who w later went on to direct in the silence and the sound era that I used in playing for the film. And I played for the film at the Hewlett Woodmere Library. Every year, Philip Harwood, who's a film historian and film fan and educator and librarian, I think this is like the 11th year that we've done something, but... Uh, Philip and I do shows once a year at a couple of two, three different libraries out in Long Island, and he wanted to show Robin Hood. And so the Hewlett Woodmere Library uh, has a beautiful auditorium, one of the nicest library auditoriums I've seen, and it's got a really nice stage, really big screen. The booth is really pretty high end and the piano itself is a very nice Steinway and the piano gets worked on on an annual basis so it's in excellent shape and so in preparing to play for the film you know I don't like to use existing music unless it really fits and a lot of the sheet music that's published was put out to promote the film it may not really have been part of the original score and in some cases it doesn't really fit but in this case the love theme and the Robin Hood march really really seemed to fit and so I tried to incorporate that into my score so what you'll hear is a, f a few minutes of my live performance score for Robin Hood at the Hewlett Woodmere Library recorded with my Zoom H2N digital recorder placed on the right my right side of the music rack with the lid on a ha on the short stick so if you're wondering why it sounds the way it does that's why this is just before they all go off to battle. And it's the first time I think that Douglas Fairbanks and his love interest have declared their love for one another. And so you'll hear some underscore that leads into the Robin Hood love theme, which then segues into the gradual gathering of everybody and heading off into battle. And I believe there's a snippet of the Robin Hood march in there as well. So this is from March 1st. Here is a few minutes from my live score 
for Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood. the Hewlett Woodmere Library in Hewlett, New York on Long Island. Yours truly accompanying Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood program I did there on March 1st of 2020 introduced and with Q&A by Philip Harwood. You heard some of my use of the themes that were composed and published. 
I don't usually use those because only I know that they're from the original score. <laughs> the audience has no idea. It's not like playing, you know, Tara's theme from Gone with the Wind. They don't know it's the love theme or the Robin Hood march, but they actually fit. And if it saves me having to come up with something and it isn't distracting, then I'll use it. Victor Scherzinger is really actually quite a good composer. He had an unusual dual career because he didn't yeah. he didn't stop composing and start directing. The two careers ran side by side. And for our listeners, uh, the songs that they might know are I Remember You and Tangerine. Both big hits he had after he had been directing for many years and had some big film hits as a director. Yeah, and he and he was behind, working behind the scenes on some of the Doug Fairbanks comedies. You see his name in the credits on some things like When the Clouds Roll By. Despite the fact that Douglas Fairbanks is bigger than any star we have today, he can't get arrested at a lot of film programs. One of the hats I wear is that of the film programmer, especially with repeat venues where we've gradually built up an audience for silent film. That's the programming part of silent film accompaniment, knowing the films, knowing who has them, knowing where they are, who has the rights, who doesn't, what are the permissions and all that kind of stuff, and how something goes over with an audience and how to introduce an audience to something where it's an uncharted waters. And Doug Fairbanks is surprisingly difficult, I have found, uh, to program at a venue that has not shown one of his films already. It's not like his films are complete unknown quantities because they're stories you already know. You know Zorro and you know Robin Hood and you know The Three Musketeers and you know the you know, Thief of Baghdad Aladdin story. And you would think, oh, well, that's, that should be an easy sell. And you get this sort of quizzical response. And, oh, how long is Robin Hood? Well, it's about two hours and 15 minutes. Oh, uh, how about Thief of Baghdad? Oh, yeah, that sounds fun. It's like Aladdin, but with, without the songs. Yeah, how long is that? Two and a half hours, maybe? Oh. And so I find it takes me a few years of doing Keaton and Lloyd and Keaton and Lloyd. Like what we've done... Keaton and Lloyd for a while. Can we please do the Mark of Zorro? It's 90 minutes. Oh, okay. And once you showed Mark of Zorro, that's sort of like the gateway, <laughs> the gateway drug. <laughs> and then people are fine. And so, like, at the Cinema Arts Center on Long Island, we've really built up an audience for Fairbanks. So, again, we started with Zorro, and we've shown Three Musketeers. I think we showed Robin Hood recently. And we get crowds and people had so much fun with the films. You mentioned having been through Lloyd and Keaton with many of these venues. Would you say there's a lot of cross-pollination between the visual comedies and Fairbanks style of action adventure? I would think so, because there's humor and comedy in his films that he carries over from those, those comedies he was make, making before Zorro. I mean, this is the fun thing I have every year when I teach my class at Wesleyan. We do a session on Fairbanks, on the, on the invention of the action-adventure drama, and I show them the first 20, 22 minutes of A Modern Musketeer. Then we show Mark of Zorro. And these are college students who don't know who he is. They don't know what to expect. They have no exposure to Douglas Fairbanks. And with Modern Musketeer, they just dive right in and have so much fun and he's, you know, literally winking into the camera, you know, as one, at one point he turns up in the costume and he's, he's practically says, hey, it's me in this costume. It's still me. And it just goes over so well. And I think that's what it is that works. It's still fun. It's, it almost feels like he's winking at us, confiding in us. Oh, isn't this fun throughout a lot of these films? And I feel like this is a part of preservation work in getting things that people 
might not go to right off the bat into the theaters and up on the screens for people to find. It's like the thing of just getting people to a silent film show at all. You know, once you get them in and they see how much fun it is, it's fine. This is Kelly Kitchens from Dallas, Texas. And I watched the silent comedy watch party with my husband, Mark Wickersham, uh, from our home. We love to watch it live. It's, um, it's, it's something, there's something to watching it live that really makes us feel very connected to Ben and to Steve. There's just something fun about watching it live like that. You know, we we know we know the big three, and actually, I guess big four or five. You know, including uh, Chaplin and and Keaton and uh, Harold Lloyd and and Roscoe Arbuckle, and we know those, but we don't know as well the the lesser known um, or lesser known to us anyway. Uh, comedians that were being introduced to us during this time and like uh, Marcel Perez I really oh he was adorable he's just absolutely adorable and uh, Charlie Bowers is uh, we were so enchanted by by him and I can't wait to see more of uh, what he what he's up to and who he is and it's just it, and having them mixed up with, oh, and Alice Howell, oh my goodness, I can see so much of of Lucille Ball's comedy from I Love Lucy. She must have have seen Alice Howell. I can just I just totally I can totally see that connection there. And I I don't know maybe it's just me, but I I love trying to come up with seeing that um so i love seeing these women comedy com comedians as well so that's been really fun so if one theme of today's show is silent superstars i guess a secondary theme is your relationship to pre-existing music we're referring to of course to loves of carmen from 1927 with dolores del rio and victor mclaughlin and directed by Raoul walsh exactly and this is a film that moma restored recently and it's part of a, a multi-year project that dave kerr has been working on dave kerr is a curator in the department of film at moma having films that MoMA has preserved that are the best or the only surviving material on films made by and released by Fox the late 20s and early 30s. Getting these films done up in new digital 4K restorations and then out to festivals and ideally to theaters. This is something that MoMA had preserved in the 1970s. This is a, a project that Eileen Bowser, who used to be the, the head of the archive at MoMA, uh, during the 1970s and early 80s, undertook to find American silent films that were in foreign archives, and in particular, that survived at the Czech Film Archive, and to do preservation. So they survived at that archive, but only on nitrate. The nitrate was brought to the U.S., preservation negatives were made, and the nitrate shipped back. The unusual thing is that in some cases, like with Loves of Carmen, they survive in the foreign release version. So they're a little bit shorter, and the new 
intertitles and main titles had to be created. And Momo works with someone who does excellent, excellent work in making you know authentic looking titles because the film survived with intertitles that are in the Czech language. And each title only survives in maybe in a few frames. Some films, there are these what are called flash titles because they flash by on screen. And sometimes they're the full length. Why would they do that? Why would they have such short titles? From what I understand, it's at the end of the run, you have to ship the print back. And somebody figured out that if you cut the titles down to a few frames and you took all the title footage out, the reel would weigh less. So it would save on shipping. So Loves of Carmen is not uh, the Bizet opera. And this is the question mark over my head is, do I use the Georges Bizet music that everybody knows? It's been beaten to death. It's almost cartoony, which is one of the reasons I didn't want to use it. Everybody knows the Carmen themes and you don't want people to hum along or have their own associations when you play something. Presumably this film was a direct adaptation from the novel. Exactly. And and from what I read online about the film, it was not intended to be what everybody knew from the opera, but up on screen with Dolores Del Rio and Victor McLaughlin. It was meant to be its own thing. Ra- Raoul Walsh's version of that story, they had all three of them done What Price Glory, and that was such a big hit. And so th- this was the next thing that they did. So... One thing is that I got around it by the fact that there are about three minutes of titles before the film even begins explaining the source material and where the print came from and what negative was used and all that kind of stuff. And I needed to fill that time. And I thought, you know what? I'll create a medley of the Bizet music and play it during the the preservation titles. Uh, Lee Irwin told me years ago when, when I was studying film accompaniment with him, he would play for Phantom of the Opera and Osferatu. He said, at the as the lights were going down, I would play... The, the Bach, you know, Takata and Fugue, everybody, because people are expecting to hear that. But I, he said, I get it out of the way <laughs> while the lights are coming down. You've heard it, and now we can move on and, play, and, and run the movie. So I got the Bizet themes out of the way. I got the Habanera and, uh, uh, you know, all, all the. So they've heard it, and then the film begins, and I, I, I think I. I played the the love theme that you that that's from from the opera during the opening titles, and I never touched it again. There are things that are structurally different, and this is what you'll hear in the recording: is there's a moment in both the film and the opera where she dances this segadilla for Don Jose. Now, in the opera, it's in the first act. It's a very slow three. I think it's in a minor key, and it's done as a seduction. In the movie, it's about two-thirds of the way in, way after it would it would be in the story in the opera. It's not a seduction. It's just her dancing around. It's a much lighter moment, although it is specifically referred to in an intertitle, which, you know, uh, Don Jose is in this cafe, and she's pretended to be one of the waiters and snuck in, and she's serving him food and drink, and she goes over to the guy playing the guitar and tells him in a title to play the segadilla. It is a type of folk tune. I thought I would find several examples of that kind of a folk tune. I'm sure there are musicologists and there are flamenco guitarists yelling at their MP3 player right now. Like, there's tons of that material. Why didn't you contact me? But I found something that sounded kind of like it fit. And that was the thing that I thought, well, the Bizet segadilla does not fit this scene at all. And so I came up with something on my own. So 
this segment you'll hear from my live score are performed at MoMA on the Steinway Grand Piano is just before the Segedia begins. It's the thing you'll hear it's in three. It's preceded by this sort of light comedy moment of her goofing around a little bit, and then it goes into something else. But this is a live performance from, I think it's January 9th. That's correct. 2020. Oh, I got that right. At the Museum of Modern Art for Loves of Carmen.
live-in performance from the Titus II Theater at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in January of 2020. Yours truly accompanying The Loves of Carmen, directed by Raoul Walsh, starring Dolores Del Rio and Victor McLaglen, and restored by the Museum of Modern Art's Department of Film, and part of the To Save and Project Film Preservation Festival that's held every year. We were talking in episode 35 in connection with the film Strike, of your procedure of boning up on actual Russian material, getting it under your fingers, and then kind of throwing it away, not looking at it and making your own Russian material. Would this be an analogous situation here from Loves of Carmen? I think so. I think a little bit. You want to just get close enough to meeting the audience's expectations of what they're going to hear so they can forget about it and not go, why isn't he playing something that sounds Spanish? And I questioned it throughout the score, throughout the score, and I played it for the film twice, thinking, "Is this too Spanish? Is should I lean off, back off of this? Is it too much? Is it not enough? Are people expecting to be more? What if I did this? Should I, should I weave some of the Bizet in? No, I shouldn't." So I think I aimed for that a little bit, just just so that people know it's there. Now there was another complication in playing this film in terms of uh, yeah, it, bridging over some missing material. Yeah, yeah. I was able to access a screener ahead of time to watch the film, and I often will make what I call a cue sheet, which is things to cue myself that I'll have on the music frack in front of me, and I will write down bits of information about each story, and if there are shifts on the action, if there are surprises, and it'll say in boldface and all caps, get ready for blah blah, when he picks up the axe, then cut to, or whatever, and just because of the way the film survives there are jumps not only within scenes like a shot or two might be missing because it decomposed there might be a, a sequence that's missing uh, and we've jumped ahead and what I wanted to do because it's jarring I wanted to smooth that over for whoever was watching and try to do things musically that helped them decode what was going on whereas Escamillo is over here by this table and all of a sudden now he's sword fighting with somebody and there's a, a, a shot or two missing where these two people get out in each other's faces and draw their swords it'll look like a bizarre jump cut and this is now further complicated by the fact that a lot of times what's done is there's visual stabilization as well as uh, digital cleanup and you have to stabilize before you can do the cleanup and what this means is that where there used to be a slight jump when a splice would go by there isn't a splice jump anymore and so it just looks like this Melier's bewitched jump in action all of a sudden pop this thing has happened and so rather than just following along and suddenly playing sword fight music when they're fighting I have things written down like two or three things before the sword fight so I know and then I can build into it so it doesn't come out of nowhere musically and there's a lot of cues like that so this this is another part of the process in terms of underscoring but it's also smoothing over those jumps by bridging them musically so what you're saying so is that it's the, not jarring the, uh, there's a musical idea that connects the material before and after the jump yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it and it helps it you know, so much work and so much money was put into this project. You want the film to go over as well as possible. Loves of Carmen it's an okay film, but it looks really good. There are great performances in it and I think there's a certain amount of what worked in the late twenties about it because it was a huge hit at the time that people just knew the story really well and were just 
so thrilled to get to see Dolores Del Rio and Victor McLaglen in a picture together again that they they flocked to it. It's definitely worth booking, and as as cinemas reopen, the more it gets shown, it may pick up some steam and some interest. And it's it's good for the archives who do these restorations. Just they spent all this work on on restoring something. And this is something else Eileen Bowser once said: a preservation isn't completed until it's shown to an audience. File this away in the back of your head, and as you're programming for 2021, uh, do book Loves of Carmen from MoMA, and you can get it on DCP from them. So in this uh, stay-at-home time, a new art form has emerged along with Zoom readings and all those internet things, which is uh, the, uh, the silent comedy watch party is one of the pioneers, which is live streamed accompaniment. I take it the idea is to try and hold on to some aspect of the live performance experience with a silent film. Yeah, it's, it's you know, we're not in the same room, but you're reminded, I mean, I deliberately will remind people at the top of the show that we're all watching this together, that we're not in the same room, but you can see there's like three or 400 other people besides you. We're all sitting in our living rooms watching this at the same time, and that's why I love to encourage people, if they can, to watch it when it's live and not later when it's archived. I dove right in on March 15th with the pilot for the watch party, the previous weekend, I had been in Beatrice, Nebraska, where we were, some people were you know, waving elbows at each other and using Purell and some weren't. And then within a week, it was like, uh, no, we're not having shows. And then within two days of the pilot, we definitely aren't having shows. And uh, one of the things that happened out of that is that a week or two in, Dylan Skolnick at the Cinema Arts Center saw what I was doing and liked the idea of it. And there, he and every other art house programmer and manager figure, okay, now what do we do? Are you are you doing this? What about popcorn? Are you doing this? Are you having a drive-in? Are you doing this? And so Dylan contacted me and he and I talked about doing what I was doing with the watch party, but as a show for the Cinema Arts Center. And we've set it up and basically on June 18th, I will live accompany Steamboat Bill Jr. with Buster Keaton. And the event is ticketed through the, the Cinema Arts Center. And we'll have a link for that. We will have a link for that. And then when I say ticketed, it's either free or pay what you wish. And there's a link to donate to the cinema because like all art house cinemas, they're hurting. It'll, it's not going to be done where it's going to be visible to everybody on, on YouTube the way the Silent Comedy Watch Party is. Uh, you sign up through the Cinema Arts Center You'll be sent an unlisted YouTube link. And if you sign up for this, please don't, please, on the honor system, please don't share it and post it anywhere. Um, and then at 7 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time on June 18th, I will, from my living room, introduce and then live accompany Steamboat Bill Jr. It's not the restoration. I want to play nice with the folks who've worked so hard on the restorations. It's still fine. We're, we We all could use a really good laugh right now. So... I hope this goes well. I did a test pilot of this a few weeks ago with uh, a live accompaniment of the William S. Hart film Sand. If you're on my email list, you would have gotten a link to it. And I think 25, 30 people tuned in. I just wanted to see, will this work? And it did. The stream quality went through. It didn't lock up or anything like that. It was fine. 
it's something I want to be able to offer to other art houses or even occasionally do on my own because there's an audience for silent film and this live streamed stay at home world we live in opens up some things and and I think that even with art house cinemas reopening they're going to be reopening with distance seating which means that there's a certain number of people who are just not going to get in the two-thirds of the house that usually has people in the seats, those people are not going to get to see whatever that entertainment is. And those people are still going to want to see theater or concerts or silent film. What about schools or museums that might not be able to afford to pay for your travel and hotel? Uh, is that a possibility? Well, this, yeah, uh, it's definitely a way to go. In the last couple of years, there were a lot of art houses that would have films where the independent filmmaker introduced the film via Zoom on the screen. Uh, and I know that at Wesleyan, one of the things that happened because of Zoom is that it suddenly became real easy to get guest speakers because you were just wiring them in. You weren't flying anybody in and putting them up. So there's there's an opportunity there. crisis brings innovation. We'll see. We'll see if it works or not. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film. Accidentally Preserved is a series of DVD of silent films that survive only in home movie formats. Volume 4 contains 8, count them, 8 films and an exciting mix of slapstick, farce, melodrama, and romantic comedy featuring such stars as Colleen Moore, Warner Baxter, Mae Marsh, Bobby Ray, Flora Finch, and the great Hal Roach comedy ensemble. There's even a live-action comedy directed by animation great Dave Fleischer. In fact, you can get a little preview of this disc if you watch episode 9 of the Silent Comedy Watch Party, which includes the hilarious Wages of Tin, starring Glenn Tryon. Two of the films are home movie abridged versions of features which are otherwise unavailable to the public. Ben, I believe this is a story about the Colleen Moore film, The 90 and 9. Yeah, and that film has not been preserved. And so what survives is this two-reel cut-down on 9.5mm film. It's based on a barn burner of a stage property that had as its climax a locomotive racing to a town that is on fire. And so it's replicated in this film. The 9.5mm format is European format where the sprocket holes are down the middle of the film between each frame of film instead of on the sides. So you have the image quality of 16 for the compactness of 8mm. The films on Accidentally Preserved Volume 4 are all from the USC Hugh M. Hefner Moving Image Archive through a partnership with the archive and working together with Dino Everett, who's the head of the archive there. The Accidentally Preserved Volume 4 is all stuff that you can't get anywhere, and I hope you'll enjoy discovering the film. So you can get Accidentally Preserved Volume 4 and recreate a home movie watch party from the 1920s. It's recommended by Movie Silently and DVT Talk, which says, and I quote, Ben Modell provides the music for these shorts from scores he composed, and they are great. You can find Accidentally Preserved Volume 4 at Undercrank Productions, Amazon, Deep Discount, Movies Unlimited, Oldies.com, and just about anywhere you can purchase classic film. That's Accidentally Preserved Volume 4. So our third performance is another all-star vehicle, 
It's Lillian Gish and Ronald Coleman in The White Sister, directed by studio veteran Henry King. And that presented its own challenges, did that not? It's a film I don't know, and it doesn't get shown much. This was a screening held at the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia, where they have a beautiful movie theater. And the theater has a digital Wurlitzer made by the Walker organ and company in it. So I got to play A new that. restoration, wasn't it? Well, it's a new print. Mm-hmm. And I think this was one of those cases where my impression of the film was surpassed by that of the audience. There's a big storm in it, and there's a lot of drama. This is Lillian Gish's first film after making films with Griffith. So you kind of have expectations also of this to be on the same par with Way Down East and Orphans of the Storm and, and stuff like that. For me, getting to play for this was another opportunity to try to play in a more orchestral way, to play fewer notes, to not be quite so busy, and especially with theater organ, to play it like it's an orchestra and not a keyboard instrument. The recording you'll hear is from the from the live performance in late November of 2019. And this is with my Zoom H2N digital recorder placed up against the back wall of the theater. The acoustics in that space are a little on the dry side. And it's a 250-seat theater. The, the walls have cloth on them. There's carpeting. There's curtains. And it's kind of an acoustically dead space. And the organ can be a little bit more in the in your face than it ought to be. So by putting my digital recorder at the back of the house helps that a little bit. I found a hunk of the recording where you'll hear very soft, subtle playing because Lillian Gish is a nun. And this is why the title of the film is The White Sister, sister meaning nun, where I turn the tremolos off. And the tremolos is a part uh, of the instrument that makes the sound go wah, 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 wah. I'll turn that off for like a church kind of a, an effect. And then turn back on and then turn some more of the brassier reed sounds on. So you'll get to hear that in this recording. And this is live in performance in November of 2019 at the Library of Congress Packard Campus Theater, accompanying the White Sister on the Walker Digital Wurlitzer.
sound of the Walker Digital Wurlitzer at the Packard Campus Theater of the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia. Yours truly piloting the instrument through a live improvised score to The White Sister, starring Lillian Gish, directed by Henry King, released by MGM in 1923. One of the things that that organ has on it is what we call a toy counter, all the sound effects that you often associate with silent film organ music. And it's something I try not to use. That was a big bugaboo that Lee Irwin had because it kind of calls attention to itself. But in the last several years, I've found myself using the toy counter sparingly just because nobody knows that it's there as a way of educating people to, oh, this is something else that a theater organ does. I don't want to get all Three Stooges cartoony with it, but... There are some effects that are useful. There's a horn honk and a klaxon or a bell box. And when they cut to a close-up of it, there are things that I'll use. And you got to match it because if you don't hit the sink just right, don't bother. Because then, uh, then that calls attention to us. Oh, the organist totally blew that cue. So in The White Sister, there's a huge storm. In the either the last reel or the next to last reel, and it just, just rages and rages. And I'd almost forgotten, but there's a a foot pedal to turn on a couple of different... There's a wind sound and a thunder sound and uh, also a rolling cymbal crash. And if you hold the pedal down certain distance, it's just the rolling cymbal. And if you step on it all the way, then there's a crash. And if this was an orchestra, which it should be, I think that I would have had the percussion person play a rolling cymbal crash in certain places. So I used that, again, sparingly, because it was there, because I could. And it was a way of taking the organ up to 11. I'd already turned on everything, brought on the couplers, hit all the reeds, and, and the storm was still going. And I, I, I knew how much longer it was going to be. I thought, oh, you know what else I could do? And here's the rolling cymbal. That makes a nice introduction um, to our FAQ this week. And I do oh, hope, yes. uh, listeners, if you have a question that is a sort of a general question, about accompanying silent film that you will go to silentfilmmusic.com go to the contact us page and send us your question so this question is what are the do's and don'ts of instruments that have built-in sound effects i think the term bells and whistles actually originates with theater organs that, that the demonstration that you had a really, really fine organ that you had all the bells and whistles and gunshots and yeah. <laughs> horns. And, yeah, and every almost every theater organ that has a toy counter has, has a bird tweet and horse's hoofs, which uh, I've, I've never really used those, although I think I did a comedy short once where somebody got hit on the head and saw stars. And because it was kind of cartoony, it fit, or I may have used it for something where... It was, a, a, again, a comedy where there was a, a bird tweeting. Yeah, the, those two I have very little use for. The, the don'ts and be carefuls about using the toy counter range from whoever you're asking. There are some organists who use them because they're there and they can, and because it was the tradition in the teens and 20s to use the toy counter. I try not to use it because it can call attention to itself, and... It's hard to strike the right balance because you don't want to pull people out of the picture by going, oh, that doorbell fit. And you can play something musical that fits the moment of a doorbell ringing. And I don't mean going, playing something that sounds like somebody ringing a bell that fits the dramatic arc of 
uh, a pause in a conversation being interrupted by a bell ringing. So you play a musical, so, essentially a musical interruption rather than a sound effect. You right, you yeah, you can do it that way. I mean, there's a wide range, and everybody will tell you that their version is the right way to go, and it, your mileage may vary. And I tend to lean more in the direction of the way Chaplin used sound effects in modern times. Uh, there are a few places where uh, a hit on the head is punctuated with a woodblock, and there are places where it's yeah, not. Yeah, I would think that city lights uh, and modern times are excellent guides for that kind of thing. Yeah, and there's very little with the sound effects in city lights and, except for the whistle, but that's a, a sound gag where he Charlie swallowed a whistle. But in modern times, there's a little bit more use of buzzers and bells and stuff like that but not for every every little thing and that's my taste and it's it's constantly evolving and i also think of the audience if it's an audience that has heard theater organ a bit they don't need to be educated that oh something else that theater organ does is chinese gong but there are practitioners of this kind of vintage foley art there's a guy named nick white in chicago who has a collection of vintage 1920s sound effects that were in orchestra pits throughout the silent film era. And it's definitely an art form that people are doing today. There's a guy named Mike Dobson who does a lot of stuff with digital foley. He was the percussion guy in the musical of SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, who I think was a character in the show practically with launch pads and all sorts of samples and stuff like that. But he's also a composer. But there's definitely an art to doing that. And I know Mike did uh, a lot of the live foley for Old Hats, the show with David Shiner and Bill Irwin. It was a th- yeah, li- a live theater piece. But, it, you know, it wasn't hit you over the head, Walter Lance cartoon kind of thing. It was just the right amount, and there's a good way to do it, and it depends on what the entertainment is and who the audience is, too. All right, on our way out the door, once again, I have a recommendation, and I'm sensitive that the last couple that I've given might impose a burden on the pocketbook. And this one, if you have the access to it, is absolutely free because it comes to you from your public library. So reach out to your library. Even though they don't have their doors open, there's very likely somebody there answering the email. I know there is for mine. And your library card may give you access to a streaming video channel called Canopy with a K, K K-A-N-O-P-Y. And it is absolutely extraordinary because it has a wide range of film. It has some contemporary popular, but it really leans very heavily on classic film, foreign film. It has a smattering of silent films. It's going to have things you just don't have access to elsewhere. It's really primo extraordinary stuff. I know I'm catching up on some of my foreign language classics or or non-American classics. I think I'm finally going to get to see Hitchcock's Blackmail. With your the use of your library card, you can log in for free and you get 10 free downloads per month. Hey, the price is right. So reach out to your library, your librarian, and see if you've got access to Canopy because there's a wealth of great material. Oh, I forgot one of the best things they have on there is the uh, British series, The Story of Film and Odyssey, which is incredible history. It's a lot of -of out-of-the-way stuff that you don't know, even if you're a film buff like me. Three of the hours are exclusively silent films, so we're on topic. 
but there's lots of goodies at Canopy, so do check that out. And it's it's an, like an art house, and it's it's all the stuff that you couldn't necessarily find on Netflix, and it's all it's all licensed. Yeah. Yes, it's all legitimate. And, yeah, which is great. Well, that's our show, folks. This has been episode 36, believe it or not, of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm your host, Ben Modell, and I'm joined, as I am every episode, by Kerr Lockhart. We thank you for listening. Thanks for sharing links. Do put a review on iTunes or Apple Podcast. It helps get the show found by other people. I can be found all sorts of places online. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Silent Film Music. My website is silentfilmmusic.com. And I hope you'll join me every week for the Silent Comedy Watch Party on Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Kerr, thanks again for all your production and organization. My as always. And, uh, keep, and, keep, and keeping the show moving along. And we look forward to visiting with you again on episode 37 of the Silent Film Music Podcast. Thanks. Thanks.